Okay, so welcome back to the second episode of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Throughout this series of podcasts, I will be talking to a large number of experts around the globe. Um, but I'm also going to incorporate my own team here at uh, Guru Performance from time to time. And there's no better in-house expert than my colleague, Scott Robinson. Um, Scott isn't just my uh, colleague at Guru Performance. He's also a doctoral researcher at the University of Birmingham. And you can certainly read more about him at guruperformance.com. So I'm just going to jump straight in, but I just wanted to say welcome, Scott. Hi, Laurent. Hi there. Uh, of course, we know each other quite well. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, you've got a lot of expertise in certain areas. And whilst um, I'm going to, you know, get a lot of international and local experts on this on this podcast and you know this is about we do science so i don't want to be uh sort of having a more commercial chit chat i wanted to to get into the meat the meat of the science which is what i hope the listeners are after here there's so much variety out there so i'm hoping we can contribute to that but of course um you know i've got things that uh that i'm sort of a, a, a quote unquote expert in but you have certain areas i think the listeners would really benefit from and it's not just your current doctoral uh, studies but also your experience with me at Guru Performance types of clients we work with and of course the various athletes and teams that you've been involved with past and present. Um, so I wanted to sort of delve into some of these areas with you and the first topic I wanted to discuss is this idea of meal frequency. We, we frequently hear bounced around by you know, um, real, you know, real proper experts do debate, you know, whether or not we should be eating once a day or, you know, uh, miss out meals or should we eat five times a day, four times a day, three times a day. And of course, there's fairly compelling arguments um, given uh, for some of these. And of course, there's also um, utter uh, sort of garbage and pseudoscience behind some of the others. So let's try and clarify this, this idea of meal frequency. Does eating, for example, two meals versus six meals per day um, have an impact? And uh, um, and I'm, my focus really here is on body composition. To a certain extent, performance we can get into, but how does meal frequency affect body composition, Scott? Okay, well, very first and foremost, I'd say that when it comes down to meal frequency, um, the most important consideration uh, for any client or any athlete that someone's working with um, would really be their particular preference on on how often they like to eat. Um, that's probably one of the most important factors to consider uh, from the off. So, for example, you don't really want to be providing a diet or providing advice to a client, um, you know, saying, okay, well, let's have six meals a day, and usually they only eat two because they may not be able to adhere to that in, in the long term, which in terms of body composition goals is, of course, we want these uh, achievements in body composition, shall we say, to be to be over the long term as opposed to the short term. Sure. I guess if we're looking from a metabolism perspective, um, the, the, the well-controlled uh, studies that are out there show that really there isn't much of a difference between consuming two, uh, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, uh, could go on, meals per day uh, on actual metabolism. Uh, provided that, say, for example, if you give someone two meals a day or you give them six meals a day and these meals are matched in total energy content and also in terms of their macronutrient composition, then the actual um, 
energy or the actual yeah the actual energy expenditure over the day uh, will be pretty much exactly the same. <coughs> Excuse me, as will the total amount of fat uh, being burned or, or as we call it oxidized. Uh, there doesn't really be, seem to be uh, any studies out there which comprehensively show that eating more frequently actually speeds up metabolism such as to assist fat loss. Sure. So I guess it's our, our favorite um, topic of uh, being in context or not, doesn't it? You've got to consider the, the client that you're working with. It, may, it just may not be practical for that person to eat. Mm you know, eight times a day. Uh, but on the other hand, it, it may be more practical for them to eat three times rather than five times. But of course, yeah. sometimes we're led to believe that, oh my gosh, you know, if I don't have my five meals evenly spread throughout the day, uh, suddenly my muscles are going to drop off or, you know, I, I, it's just not going to work. So, um, you know, clearly that doesn't appear to be held in the evidence. But also, Scott, um, and we talked about this before, when we do look at these studies, we're not necessarily being told what kind of study it is. And there is a big difference between um, a, uh, you know, more, a more short-term study that might be looked at as a snapshot within a day as opposed mm. to a 24-hour 24, 24 study. Uh, do you want to yep. sort of elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I've, I've just mentioned um, really the evidence from uh, well-controlled studies. Mm. So what I really mean by that is there's some studies out there uh, on meal frequency, uh, and they have really made conclusions based on uh, changes in, in parameters such as BMI. Now, for example, if... A paper advocates the use of six meals per day over three meals a day because, you know, in a group of eight to ten subjects, it reduced their BMI. That doesn't necessarily mean that they've actually lost body fat. Yeah. Um, maybe that they have lost body fat, but it may be that they've actually lost lean body mass, so muscle mass. Yeah. Indeed, it could be a combination. It's likely to be uh, a combination uh, of both. So really, we should look at the actual measures that the, the studies are using. Um, in terms of a snapshot, um, I certainly think that the studies that look at meal frequency uh, and its effects on metabolism uh, over a period of 24 hours are much more uh, representative of the actual effect on metabolism than our studies um, that look at the effects of meal frequency over, over only a short period of time. Sure. Yeah. No, I think that's important. And of course, I know we have a mixture of listeners here who aren't necessarily all you know, sports scientists or nutritional scientists or even uh, nutritional practitioners. I know there's some sort of uber-interested members of the public that follow this podcast. And, uh, um, you know, it, it, it's things like just because it's been published in a paper does mm. not make it a fact. You've still got to learn how to read and interpret a paper. And like you were saying, BMI is it's just an equation. It's, it's, got, yep. it's not relevant to actual body fat. So maybe if they showed it through, uh, you know, DEXA or Isaac yep. or, or something, you, you could maybe trust it more. But of course, people don't, do they? They, they just take these papers for granted. Mm -hmm, for sure. Yeah. I mean, particularly popular media that's out there at the moment, they like the kind of trendy uh, catch line that a paper gives uh, without actually delving into the, the actual methodology and, and, the, and the measures used, which is... sure. Of course, you know, absolutely essential. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, so I guess, you know, just to sum up that particular question, then the, the 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 basic summation that we can make is on the balance of science that we have today, quality science that's been appropriately um, interpreted 
As far as mill frequency is concerned, whilst it can make some difference, um, it's not really a big issue that most people need to worry about, particularly when it relates to fat loss, right? Yeah, so in terms of fat loss, I certainly wouldn't say it's the holy grail. Yeah. Say the, the two main considerations, the, the very first and, 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 and arguably the most important uh, is creating uh, a negative energy balance. Yeah. That really is the master regulator of, of fat loss. Agreed, yeah. Second to that is, is really to look at the macronutrient, uh, so carbohydrate, fat, and protein composition of the diet. Sure. Um, those, are the, those are certainly the two most important considerations. Yeah. Um, there is some nice research out there uh, that's recently come out, I think it was last year, which says that you know, consuming uh, smaller pulses uh, of protein, so around about 20 to 30 grams uh, in five times uh, per day is superior to consuming uh, protein in, in bolus doses uh, of around about, I think it was about 70 grams spread, you know, twice over the day. Sure. And that actually helps to promote uh, MPS, so yeah. muscle protein synthesis, which, which therefore could lead to uh, greater le uh, gains uh, in lean body mass. So there are these considerations too. So it's actually quite multifactorial but yeah. really if we're talking fat loss then yeah it's yeah. all about the energy balance. yeah no for sure for those that are athletes and for those that are they're looking for the gains yeah, yeah. Uh, so lean people where gaining mass is a bigger issue then potentially there could be an issue with meal frequency but then of course that's because we're trying to manipulate the sort of molecular events through things like you know, stimulating um, MPS through uh, leucine, et cetera, et cetera. But that's that's for a topic for another day, I think. Yeah, I mean, those are, those are considerations for people that are really looking to to get those one to two percent marginal yeah uh, marginal gains. I would say. Yeah. So for all the craziness that we hear about um, out there in the magazines and social media, at the end of the day, the take home message is your daily targets in terms of overall energy intake. Getting yeah. the, the, the macronutrients, high quality macronutrients, getting that stuff right is primary and then and then maybe looking at these other factors. Uh, which of course yeah. everyone gets it the other way around though, don't they? Of course. <laughs> uh, you know. So we've sort of touched upon protein a bit, so let's quickly talk about that. It is a topic that will come up on many podcasts and I've got various researchers and professors uh, lined up to, you know, with um, with uh, very specific expertise in those topics, so we'll leave, we'll leave the complex stuff to them yeah. um, when it comes to protein. But yeah. you know, generally speaking, is too much protein dangerous? You know, we we are we gonna uh, are we gonna you know uh, have serious health problems if we overconsume mm. uh, protein, whatever overconsume means? Mm. Well, I'm, I certainly don't think we're gonna spontaneously combust if we consume too much protein. Um, in, in short, the, the answer to the question is, is really no. Yeah. Um, provided that there's no existing or pre-existing kidney uh, issues, then I'm yet to see any convincing evidence uh, that high-protein diets is necessarily bad for us. Sure. Um, the research that's been publicized recently uh, showing potential adverse health effects of high-protein diets is really based on, on quite weak interpretation of poor data. Um, so I wouldn't really say there's anything to really worry about there. Um, from a practical perspective, though, um, obviously it's important to take into account the fact that we don't just uh, need protein and protein only. Yeah. Um, so we also need, you know, a lot of people need some carbohydrate and, and we definitely all need some fat too. Yeah. Um, so really the, the, the real danger from high protein diets for otherwise healthy people 
um, is really you know having too much protein and then therefore neglecting carbohydrates and fats too. So again, I guess it just comes down to having a nice balance between uh, the macronutrients. Yeah. Now that's an important point you make there that that some people overconsume one substance or macronutrient at the expense of others. And of course, we go through these these crazy phases of, you know, fat's bad for everyone or, um, you know, carbs are now the new evil. And of course, it's, it's it, you know, it's my favorite word again. It's a question of context. Uh, there's many factors that consider, uh, that you know, that need to be considered when we're looking at these things. But I, I think yep. it's fair to say, though, that protein is something that it's not only very difficult to overfeed on and, of course, a couple of studies have been done on this, uh, one very recently in JISSN, of course, um, where not only is it hard to overfeed on protein, um, even when you do physically overfeed protein, it, you're not really going to gain any excess body fat. I mean, you might have digestive problems and some rather uncomfortable bowel issues and uh, <laughs> might feel a bit ill, but certainly <laughs> as a macronutrient, it's not something that's likely to negatively influence body composition, is it? Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, again, it, it's early days of this research. Yeah. Um, so really, we, we don't we don't particularly know the answer to that question uh, yet. Um, so there is obviously the study in JSSN, uh, which has shown that overfeeding protein doesn't negatively influence uh, body composition. Um, but yeah, like like I said, it's it is early days of this research. Of it's, yeah, it's, it's like, it's like anything. And of course, in that discussion, we could also differentiate between sort of real food, whole food sources of protein is a different subject than, say, overfeeding with supplements like whey protein and so on because they do affect us slightly differently, don't they? So uh, so anyway, so, um, I mean, how, you know, mo moving on from the whole protein topic. So another topic that I know that is of interest to you, particularly because it does play a role in some of your research that you do, I believe, where we're looking at how to get the body to burn uh, fat more efficiently. Um, so, uh, again, rather popular now is this high-intensity interval training, and yeah. uh, a lot of people who sort of champion all the merits of high-intensity training, um, yeah. you know, tend to uh, sort of poo-poo the, you know, low-intensity steady-state uh, training and also, um, you know, to throw into that mix is also the relevance of resistance training for fat burning. Where, of course, yeah. in you know, long time ago, the only way to burn fat was to to do sort of low intensity steady state. But of course, we've got three players here. I mean, and what mm. do you, you know, is one superior to the other? <laughs> um, again, it's another hotly debated question. Yeah. Um, but you know, from from the, again from the well controlled research studies that that I've read. Um, there doesn't really seem to be, uh, in terms of uh, body composition and fat loss, um, there doesn't seem to be a superior uh, exercise mode. Um, again, what we know is that, that the, really the, the master regulator of this fat loss is a, is a negative energy balance. Yeah. So provided that exercise contributes to this negative energy balance, then exercise itself can favor body fat loss. Um, now, whether you know, low intensity steady state, high intensity interval training or resistance training is the best form of exercise to promote this fat loss really remains to be fully determined. Um, there's, there is one really nice uh, research study uh, out there um, which actually asked participants uh, to reside in a whole room walking calorimeter 
um, which for people who don't know what that is, it's essentially uh, a walk-in room, say, say like a bedroom, for example. Uh, and this so-called room uh, can measure energy expenditure, uh, it can measure fat burning, uh, fat oxidation, uh, carbohydrate oxidation, uh, and protein oxidation. And it can actually do this over an entire period of a day. Um, so what this study did was it, it got, I think it was 15 uh, individuals, uh, and it asked 15 individuals on one occasion to enter the room for a period of 24 hours. And what they do is they perform low-intensity steady-state exercise for, I think it was around about an hour. And then on a completely different occasion, they'd ask them to spend another 24 hours in the room, and they'd ask them to perform high-intensity interval training for, again, around about an hour. Now, the two uh, energy bouts were energy, uh, sorry, the two exercise bouts were energy matched. So they expended exactly the same amount of energy in both conditions. And what they did was they, they analyzed how uh, each of these exercise bouts influenced metabolism uh, and energy expenditure over the day. And what they actually found was that on average, 3,000, around about 3,900 calories. Uh, were expended in the low intensity condition, uh, whereas in the high intensity condition, it was a, again around about 3,000. So over a period of 24 hours, there's absolutely no difference. Um, and what we know is that in the low intensity steady state uh, condition, the participants actually oxidize more fat during the exercise, but in the high intensity condition, they actually oxidize more fat in the period after exercise. Sure. Such, such that over the entire period of the day, the total amount of fat oxidized was 80 versus 82 grams on average. So very, very similar between conditions. So really, in terms of creating that negative energy balance, um, again, I'd say it comes down to absolutely to context and also to, to individual preference. Yeah. It swings and roundabouts, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, we, you know, a lot of people like to sort of champion something because it sounds cool or they just read about it. But at the end of the day, it really boils down to energy balance and then sort of modes of activity that, that if you like, um, you know, whatever rows your boat, isn't it? Think yeah. about think about what works for your client. What do they like or dislike? Because it's absolutely pointless getting them, getting your client or athlete to do something that they yeah. hate doing and less likely yeah. to do. Because compliance is a big issue in nutrition. You know, we... we you look at studies where they put rats in cages and they've got no choice to run on a treadmill or they've got no choice um, you know, to eat something or, or die, basically. Of course, that brings um, a certain edge to that study that we can make conclusions if we want to extrapolate that to sort of human beings in the real world. I mean, essentially, you've got to put them in a concentration camp, haven't you? So it's not necessarily relative. So it is, it is very much about context and I think... You know, as you've clearly pointed out, when it looks, when it, when we really look at the science behind it, they all have an edge um, that's worth talking about. Some of them have certain impacts on molecular, you know, events that may improve sort of metabolic changes. Some may be a bit more performance orientated, and so on. But at the end of the day, whatever works, right? Yeah, I mean, there's so much that we could talk about here. So there's, you know, there's training adaptation. Um, there's preservation of lean body mass, increasing lean body mass. Um, there's obviously uh, time efficacy. Um, so obviously, HIIT training is a very time efficient method of, of 
you know, expending calories. Yeah. But then again, what's the point in advising hit to someone that absolutely hates it and won't adhere to it in the long term? Completely agree. So really, it's yeah. all about that individual preference. Yeah, I think I think I think the great thing about high intensity interval training is you get. A, I certainly over the years had a lot of clients coming in who just complain. Look, I haven't got time. I can't go and do an hour's run. I can't whatever. So there's an obvious one there. You've got 20 minutes. You can do HIIT. Uh, some HIIT training will clearly bring about, you know, really quite comparable, you know, benefits to maybe going for a longer run. But then again, you know, the psychological impact of sprinting on a treadmill and, you know, coughing up blood is one experience. Uh, whereas going for a lovely run in the countryside is another and may have additional benefits that goes beyond yeah. just the, the metabolic, you know, it's psychological. It is certainly for me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, it's the same general theme, really. It is, it, yeah. In terms of my recommendations, it would be a mixture of the three is best. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think what we can tell the listeners is as far as we're aware, um, there's multiple factors here to consider and, um, really one isn't necessarily better than the other. I mean, they all have a place, um, but don't believe it when you hear, you know, HIT is far better at fat burning than, you know, cardio. Cardio is a waste of time. No, it's not. It's just context. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. Okay. So um, we're sort of coming to the end um, of this podcast. Uh, we deliberately don't don't make these too long. Um, so, you know, how do you feel um, the importance of understanding biochemistry is mm -hmm to uh, both both the understanding of nutritional sort of ideas and concepts and also the recommend you know recommending it to people i mean how important is understanding biochemistry to that as far as you're concerned yeah so i, I mean it, it's one of those topics that i remember when you know Do dr james morton first started teaching me <laughs> yeah um, i was you know, completely overwhelmed by absolutely everything um, but you know, as you get your head into the books and you start learning about this, it actually becomes really interesting because you know it really does underpin absolutely everything in nutrition. Um, so any nutritional recommendation that somebody gives, you can always bring that back to the very basics of you know exercise biochemistry or metabolism. Yeah. So it's certainly important for any practitioner out there to have that basic understanding of how. We utilize and metabolize carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, etc. Um, one of the good things working in, in, in the practical setting is that if, say, for example, if a client comes to me and they ask me about a new uh, supplement or a new dietary regime or something um, you know, that I may not have heard of, I probably won't go and say, yes, that's fine, or, or no, that's not fine. I'll likely, if I haven't heard of it, go and say, okay, well, I'll go and do some research. But at that particular time point when the client's looking for some form of educated response, it's always good to go back to you know, the very fundamentals of exercise biochemistry and metabolism and think, okay, well, you know, this is what's been brought to me. Um, this is the suggestion. How may this work in terms of metabolism, in terms of a mechanism? Is it feasible? And from that, you know, sometimes you can actually come up with the answer yourself. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's definitely important to have a basic understanding of, of these things. Yeah, I, I often find myself being asked by people, you know, what's a good nutrition book to read? Mm. What's a good book to understand this concept within sports nutrition? And actually, I usually tell them, do you know what, before you do that, try and learn a bit about biochemistry and physiology, because if you don't understand 
what's happening under the bonnet or under the hood for our American friends. You know, you really don't understand what's happening around it. And it, it, it's, it's, you don't need to be an expert, but you need to have an understanding to appreciate what yeah. you're saying and what you're listening to and, and being able to differentiate the rubbish or the implausible, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, well, look, we're going to bring this to an end now. And uh, sort of a question we tend to ask people frequently or will do on this podcast, and that is, um, what is the best piece of advice you can give someone looking to actually become a performance nutritionist? Okay. Um, well, I guess my, my answer is really in line with, with that of James and Graham's in, in podcast one, really, in that you know, it's, a, it's all about combining that good education with, with some practical experience. They, they both go absolutely hand in hand. Um, I say you could, you, know, you could know a textbook or know exercise biochemistry inside out, but then to, be, to actually be able to sit in front of an athlete you know, and explain this or provide nutritional recommendations, you know, is is a is completely different ball game to answering, you know, a question in an exam on, on metabolism. Um, but then again, on the flip side of that, you can't really, you know, it's not good if you're sitting in front of a client and you don't have that basic understanding of nutrition. So really the two go hand in hand. Um, and say from, you know, for, for, a, for a new um, practitioner or someone who's just started studying uh, nutrition, um, not to be uh, overwhelmed by all of the well, the vast amounts of information out there. It's very, very easy to be overwhelmed um, and really just to take things in your stride and just appreciate really, try and appreciate most areas, if not all areas of nutrition, but just understand really that it's absolutely impossible to be an expert in everything. Of course. Uh, and if you, uh, the best thing you can do is if you don't know the answer to something, just hold your hands up and say, you know, I don't know. Because by making up an answer or giving incorrect uh, information to, particularly to athletes, uh, particularly regarding supplements, mm. uh, you know, it can potentially be very, very harmful. Yeah, blagging is, uh, it sort of pervades all aspects of our lives at times, or at least it, it, uh, it can do. And of course, that always ends up being a bit of a train crash, doesn't it? So, yeah, um, yeah I, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with you there. Uh, education is key. I mean, it's definitely a combination of science, uh, real-world application, and also a bit of placebo, really, isn't it? It's uh, that there's sort of a, a nice mix. But without that solid education and knowledge behind you, you know, and, and for those listeners that aren't necessarily looking to be performance nutritionists, you know, you don't have to be looking at it from the perspective of getting a degree in this subject. But you know, reading up and learning from credible sources of information is is how you can help educate yourself. Um, and I, you know, we'll do a future podcast on what actually is a credible source of information, and yeah. maybe some tips and ideas. I think maybe that's something you and I could do, Scott, yeah. um, which might be of interest to uh, both professionals and non-professionals out there. Yeah. So um, I'd like to thank you for your uh, time, Scott, and yeah. it's yeah. been great to have you on. We'll, I'll certainly get you back um, on because we've got lots of things we can talk about. And um, thank you very much. Great, thanks. Okay, guys, so that's it. That's the end of the second ever Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Um, coming up are um, a number of international experts. I shall keep it secret for now, but there's some big, big names coming up over the uh, coming weeks and months, and I look forward to discussing a number of interesting um, and uh, very, uh, very uh, popular topics in sports and exercise nutrition with our guests, and hope that you enjoy all of this information, please do feel free to um, c 
come to uh, us at our website at guruperformance.com. Have a look at what we're doing both in our practice, but also uh, look at our uh, educational programs, particularly the ISSN Diploma, which is a postgraduate program. But also, if you want to suggest any topics that you'd like us to get into on these podcasts, feel free to email me or, of course, you can Twitter me. But at the end of the day, you'll find these podcasts on iTunes and uh, uh, just Guru Performance or We Do Science. You'll find them both there. And uh, thank you for your time, guys, and we look forward to talking to you soon.